will provide. That's the posture of faith that we have on display in this uh, important chapter of the Bible. The Lord will provide. And that's the posture of faith that's called for from you and me today as well. The Lord has provided and the Lord will provide. Over the last few weeks, uh, I don't think you would, have had, you, you would have had to work pretty hard not to have an emotional response to some of the images and stories of people trying to get out of Afghanistan through the chaos of Kabul airport. Uh, especially when you see images like this, uh, repeated images of mothers and fathers passing children over razor wire in desperate attempts to get them to safety. Uh, your breath catches a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, your gut wrenches as you think about that thought process that says, my best option for the safety and security of my child is to pass them over this wall and this razor wire, possibly never to see them again. That's a good and necessary sacrifice, a parent might reason. And seeing soldiers with smiles on their faces as they put their guns down and hold small children, it raises a different sort of emotion, I think. The heart-satisfying ones of maybe in the midst of all the chaos and the mess, there is some good that there's some sacrifice in here that has helped, that is worth it. The gut-wrenching sacrifice, the heart-satisfying rescue, they're, they're worth an emotional response from our common humanity, aren't they? But they still sit somewhere on the other side of the world and don't claim much more from us than that emotional response. They should definitely claim the response of our prayers and maybe our action in wanting to support refugees and give to humanitarian efforts, but they still sit over there. And I think that's one of the things that makes Genesis 22 all the harder for you and for me this morning, at first glance. Because the scenes in Kabul, like Genesis 22, should make uh, should catch our breath a little bit. The chapter should evoke an emotional response from us too, but there's something more in Genesis 22 than just an emotional response because this is the God who wants us to trust him. This is the God who's saying to us today, put your life and your death and your everything in my hands. And so that emotional response doesn't get to remain out there on the other side of the world or down through the centuries in history, but it lands at our feet and asks something of us as God calls us to put ourselves in his hands. And so the gut-wrenching sacrifice that Abraham is called to make in the opening scene of chapter 22 of Genesis, it just seems backward, doesn't it? You sacrifice for your child, you don't sacrifice your child. And it seems cruel. It seems to run counter to the promises and the purposes of God. And that's why throughout history, so many people have wanted to take the scissors to Genesis 22. 
and cut it out of the Bible altogether. But as our breath catches, as our guts wrench at the prospect of what's on display, I want us to see today that there is also a heart-satisfying rescue on display that says something wonderfully good about the God who calls for us to trust him with our life, our death, our everything. And so the key for us to land there today, like always, is the context and the content of the passage and also how we read this passage along the line of the Bible as it centres on the Lord Jesus. Without Jesus, Genesis 22 is cruel and unusual and makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But here we are, chapter 22, we're at the mountaintop of this Abraham journey. Uh, His journey to life, which is the journey of faith, and as always, the context is key. Last week at the end of chapter 21, we left Abraham and Sarah having welcomed Isaac, the child of promise. They had endured 25 years of painful delay and the roller coaster journey of faith that sees doubt and fear bring stumbling and sinful sorrow, even as they seek to trust the sure promises of God. And having received Isaac, we hear in chapter 21 that Abraham plants a tree and their family and those attached to them settle in the land of the Philistines. And so the gap between the end of chapter 21 and the start of chapter 22, based on how the the passage talks about Isaac, we're thinking it's about 14 or 15 years between the end of 21 and the start of 22. And imagine some of those days that we've skipped over in our story as Isaac, the child of promise, grows up into a young boy, a young man. The one through whom God has promised to raise up the nation of Israel. The one through whom God has promised to bless all the world the one upon whose shoulders all the hopes of God's people rest. Imagine how prized and cherished and looked after Isaac would have been in the camp of Abraham and Sarah and their family. Every time he ran with a stick, every time he climbed a tree or fell off a fence or as he gets a fever or a headache or a cough, be tempting to be a bit of a helicopter parent over this child of promise, don't you think? But we're not given a picture of cautious anxiety. At the end of chapter 21, the picture we get is Abraham calling on the enduring God. He's settling in the land of the Philistines, having received his promised son. There is increasing stability and security and permanence, not only in the circumstances, but in their relationship with God. Those big questions of people and place that have been the source of conflict and fear and despair and faithful perseverance, well, those questions seem to be coming to more of a settled finish, a a, a resolution at the end of chapter 21. And so it's in the midst of that picture of permanence and security and resolution that chapter 22 arrives And it seems like God is going to blow the whole thing up. Chapter 22, verse 2, verse 1. 
Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. And so here's a key bit of the content. What is God doing? He's testing Abraham. And when God tests someone's faith, it's not because he's like setting a trap for them to fall into. It's because he's got a growth in faith plan for them to walk through. He's not wanting to destroy Abraham's faith. He wants to strengthen it. He tests people, not because he delights to see them fail, but because he longs to see them strengthened in the faith. And so God's posture of testing his people's faith, it's not the the finger pyramid of evil contemplation, right? God's posture of testing is the clenched fist of determined encouragement, which is an encouragement for you and me as well, isn't it? Knowing that he's not going to ask us to walk through this particular test and sacrifice a child, this no kind of course in the Bible that suggests that would be the case. You don't need to walk through Abraham's particular test to be a Christian. But James chapter 1 says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so as we think about our Christian lives, more likely than not, God will ask us to walk through periods of testing, to endure suffering, to experience sickness even right up to the point of death, to walk through seasons of maybe persecution for following Jesus. And that's on top of just the ordinary, everyday situations of having to choose to trust God with our hopes for the future, with our children's faith, with our money and our possessions, with our words and our desires. You see, like Abraham, the journey of life, which is the journey of faith for us, will involve the testing of our faith in hard and everyday circumstances and it's through that that God will work out our faith for our good and for his glory so that we're mature, so that we can persevere, so that we're not lacking anything. And what this is, this isn't hoops to jump through to prove your worth or to earn God's love. This is the fruit of faith in God's promises that demonstrates your faith in him, that strengthens your faith in him. And so God's posture is one of the loving father with the clenched fist of determined encouragement as he walks with us and wants to see our faith strengthened, which is also what he wants for Abraham. And so look at the ramp up in chapter 22, verse 2. Take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. 
It simply intensifies that gut-wrenching nature of this particular test, doesn't it? And the call to take his son Isaac and to go, well, that should create for us an echo that takes us all the way back to chapter 12, to the original call of Abraham to go. So it's like all these steps of faith and all these stumbles of doubt over the last few decades are flashing before our eyes thinking about Abraham's journey to life, which is the journey of faith over the last 10 chapters. We've seen again and again Abraham meeting the challenge of faith, which is to take God at his word. And so as one writer has said, these brackets of go in chapter 12 and chapter 22, They kind of create this this echo in the story where the original call of Abraham to go said, let go of your past and hand it to God. And the call to go in chapter 22 is asking Abraham to let go of his future. And will you trust God with that as well? Scholar John Walton says this about this call that you probably can't read on the screen. He says, every other sacrifice God had asked Abraham to make was balanced by a promise that, in a sense, made it worth his while. There was something to lose, but more to gain. However, however here, there is nothing to gain. There's no promise that balances the loss, no covenant that offers motivation. In fact, It's not only his son that Abraham is putting on the sacrificial altar, it appears appears to be the covenant and its promises as well. It's the supreme test of faith for Abraham. And so no doubt that three-day journey that Abraham embarks on with his only beloved son Isaac is full of all kinds of unknown outcomes and uncertain purpose Why is God doing this? And God's promises swirling around Abraham's head. How is he going to keep his covenant and fulfill his promises without Isaac? But he goes with his son and the wood and the fire. Chapter Uh, Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up, saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. For three days, each step, Each minute, Abraham placing himself, his son and the future God had promised in God's sovereign and faithful hands. And while the details of the journey and the provision of the Lord aren't yet clear, it seems that for Abraham, the ultimate outcome is still crystal clear in his mind. We will come back to you. He went up the mountain with Isaac with every confidence that they would both come back down. How could that be? Why would Abraham have that kind of confidence? 
Well, he had seen, as we have seen, the disastrous results of diverting from God's promises and God's word. Abraham had seen, and we have seen, the joyful blessing that comes from resting in God's promises. God had promised time and time and time again that Isaac would be the one through whom the nation family of Israel would be established and God's global blessing advanced. Every time Abraham diverted from that promise, things went badly. We will come back to you is Abraham's confidence that God will keep his promises, even through whatever they're about to walk through. So as father and son walk up the mountain, the stronger one, Isaac, is carrying the wood. Abraham himself is carrying the fire and the knife. And the key question, the only break in the silence, apart from heavy breathing, in verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham knew of God's miraculous provision because God's miraculous provision just asked him a question. And as the Lord had provided, so the Lord will provide. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, after running with my two teenage boys the other day, one of them, who may or may not be in the room, around the same age as Isaac is here, said to me, Dad, it's just occurred to me that I am now fitter than you. (laughs) Which filled me with all kinds of mixed emotions, (laughs) right? I can't fathom for the life of me being in Abraham's shoes. And I know I'll never have to be. But one thing that strikes me in this scene that does make me think of my kids is that Isaac carried the wood. Abraham's, what, 115 years old at this point? Isaac, like my boys, is fitter and stronger than his dad. If Isaac wants to, he could run. He could overpower his father. Isaac doesn't end up on the altar without exercising his own will which is extraordinary. His own will and his own faith. The 
faith of Abraham is alive in the son Isaac. Because no doubt his whole life he's heard the stories of God's provision. No doubt his whole life he's heard the stories of God's amazing promises and God's amazing grace. Story after story of God's sovereign provision. Isaac would have heard day in and day out, the Lord has provided and the Lord will provide. And so when it comes to this moment, Isaac places his life in his father's hands, even as he places his life in God's hands. And it does give me pause to wonder whether my children hear from me enough about the Lord's provision and the Lord's grace and the Lord's faithfulness experienced in my own life so that their faith might grow and be strengthened like Isaac's. But how do Abraham and Isaac end up here? Even while holding on to the expectation that they're both, they'll both be returning down the mountain, what is it that they are placing their faith in, in this moment? Well, on the journey that we've been on the last seven weeks, we keep coming back to that verse in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, that says this, that Abraham is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Isaac is living evidence that God gives life to the dead, miraculously born through his aged and infertile parents. And in this very moment, Hebrews 11 says of Abraham and Isaac this, Hebrews 11 By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Here it is. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Isaac would lay on the altar, Abraham would raise the knife because of their faith in the God who can raise the dead. And so Abraham receives back Isaac from the dead, but not in the way he was expecting, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. That miraculous and gracious provision 
is followed once again by God's firm and gracious promises to Abraham and to Isaac, the promises of offspring, of land, of blessing, of a people, a place, and the global spread of God's blessing through them. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That is the posture of faith in the journey to life. The Lord will provide. And that is the constant posture of faith because the chorus of the Christian life, the headline, the beating heart, the foundation, the DNA of the Christian life is not what you can give to God but what He has given for you. It is not your sacrifice for him, it is his sacrifice for you. And in chapter 22, that is still on display. That is the headline. The Lord will provide and the Lord has provided. And that's what trusting God is all about. This chapter is referenced and echoed and is foundational to the unfolding narrative of the Bible from this point. And while we might still have some questions and feelings that remain unanswered from this chapter, we have to end up seeing the goodness of God as this prefigures for us the sacrifice of Jesus in our place on the cross. Because as we read along the storyline of God's Word, we will see once again, we will hear the words and we will know of God's provision in the person of Jesus. As God announces from heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is my only beloved son. As John the Baptist in seeing Jesus will say, behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And our breath ought to catch Once again, as Jesus carries his cross, where? Up this very same mountain that Abraham and Isaac walked up. As Jesus carries the wood of his sacrifice up that same hill all those years later, where he would die for the sins of the world. Our hearts ought to be moved by the gut-wrenching sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in our place as our sacrifice of atonement to bring us back to God. And we ought to delight in the heart-satisfying rescue that the Lord has provided through our forgiveness and our redemption in Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for us. And we're going to pause for a moment now to reflect and quietly pray on our own, considering the extraordinary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in our place. To entrust ourselves again to the Lord who will provide and who has provided and so can be trusted with our life, our death, our everything.
And as our breath catches and our guts wrench, and as we reflect on the enormity of what Jesus did in dying for us, God's one and only Son in our place, that emotional response doesn't just reside over there. It's one that needs to be brought in here. As we receive and as we accept for ourselves that it was our sin that held him there. That his dying breath brings us life. That the Prince of Glory was slain on the cross in our place. And so I invite you to take up your bread and your juice or whatever you have at home to express that act of faith, that act of accepting for yourself what Jesus has done and acknowledging your fellowship in his family, the church, that we are united together as the body of Christ in his death, looking back with thanksgiving and remembrance and looking forward to his return with hope and with faith. And being reminded of those that we can't see this morning, but those to whom Jesus has united us for all eternity. On the screen you'll see these, these words from Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. And drink this, remembering that Jesus' blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Well, Tim and Nick are going to come and lead us in our final song, but before they do, as they come up, Let me finish with these words from Romans chapter 8. You will see one verse on the screen. I'll read the whole passage. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life. 
is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.